0: 10. My wife is a neo-Luddite. Once, she had been a heavy gamer. She spent so much time on the computer that her parents sent her to a summer camp that specialized in curing internet addiction. The experience caused her attitude toward technology to turn 180 degrees. Many times I asked her what really happened in that campground located on Phoenix Mountain called the Nirvana Plan. She never answered me directly. This was the biggest philosophical difference between us. She believed that despite the appearance of unprecedented novelty, the high-tech industry was ultimately no different from another ancient trade. They both took advantage of the weaknesses of ordinary men and women and, under the guise of words like progress, uplift, and salvation, manipulated their emotions. Whether you put your hand on a Bible or an iPad, in the end, you were praying to the same God. We only give the people what they want. They desire comfort, joy, a sense of security. They want to improve themselves, to see themselves stand out in the crowd. We can't take such desires away from them. That was how I always argued back at her. Oh, please, don't give me that. You're just playing a game to satisfy your own yearning for control, she said. Come on, give people a little credit, I said. Everyone's got a brain. How can anyone control anyone else? There are always NPCs. What are you talking about? Non-player characters? What if everything is controlled from behind the scenes by some invisible background process? Then every action you take will affect the game logic. The system will react with NPCs and they will carry out their predetermined programming. I stared at her face as though I'd never really known her. "'I even wondered whether she had just joined some new cult. "'You don't really believe that, do you? "'I'm going to walk the dog. "'There shouldn't be much dog poop in the streets this early in the morning.'" 11. "'Every day, as the temple bell tolls five, "'I have to get up to sweep the grounds. "'I sweep the wooden floor of the gallery "'from the new library to the stone steps "'and thence to the temple gates "'where the ancient pagoda tree grows,' its gnarled branches spread like the talons of a rampant beast. As for whether I will be quietly reciting the Surangama Sutra, the Lotus Sutra, or the Diamond Sutra as I sweep, that depends on the day's PM2.5 air quality index. My throat hurts when I breathe the polluted air. I don't need the distraction. Any of the faithful coming to the temple to make offerings can see that I haven't been truly called by the Buddha. Just like all the other disciples flocking here on weekends to study Buddhist doctrine, I'm here to hide from the real world. In a way, I'm not too different from the throngs of shoppers at the Buddhist shop outside Yonghi Lamisary vying to buy electronic Buddha boxes. They bring the box home, push a button, and the box starts chanting sutras. On the hour, or at designated times, the box will even emit a tranquil, meditative, Dwong, Like the ringing of the bell in a temple. The purchasers apparently think this will bring them blessings and cleanse bad karma. I often imagine all the passengers squeezed like canned sardines into the number two subway train leaving from the Lammiserie station, all of their Buddha boxes ringing harmoniously together on the hour. Perhaps the so-called Chan state of mind refers to the detachment of such a moment from real life. And now that I have to commit to a Buddhist vegetarian diet, I miss the restaurant at Beijing Kiao where they serve chitterling soup made from ancient stock that has supposedly been accumulating flavor for years. I've canceled my mobile number and deleted all my accounts on social media. My wife has left me and returned to her hometown. I've even been given a Dharma name, Chin Wu, free of worldly dust. All I want is for those crazy people to never find me again. I've had enough. Everything began that night with a crazy marketing scheme that seemed to make no sense. Mr. Wan bought my idea. Overnight, he summoned the engineers to develop the new product. Lao Zhu laid out the marketing plan and strategy. The most important piece of the project, of course, was assigned to me, the originator. I had to go find a respected master monk willing to consecrate our app, to bring it light. Lao Zhu demanded that the entire process be filmed and turned loose online to go viral. I ran through every excuse I could think of. My family have been Christians for three generations. My wife is pregnant and can't come in contact with raw foods, animal fur, or anything having to do with spirits. Lao Zhu responded with only one line. This is your baby. If you don't want to see it through, get out and don't come back. You get me? I visited every temple in Beijing, begging and pleading with the master monks, and I sought out every lama secluded in spiritual solitude in the city's various nooks and crannies. Each time, however, even after having come to an agreement on the price, as soon as I brought out my camera, the monks' faces turned stony, and after a few amitabas, they would cover their faces and escape my presence. We tried using hidden cameras a few times, but the combination of incense haze and camera shake made the results unwatchable. As the deadline approached, I could no longer sleep, but tossed and turned all night. My wife asked me what I was doing. Rolling dough for pancakes, I said. She kicked me. If you want to do that, get on the floor. Don't pretend you're a rolling pin in bed. I'm trying to sleep. The kick managed to free my clogged neural pathways. Instantly, I was inspired. Mr. Wan's new app went on sale on time. Lao Zhu, energized like his Land Rover, shifted into high gear and whipped us into a frenzy. Videos, new concepts, and new campaigns were released one after another. Soon, a video depicting a master monk consecrating a mobile phone went viral and bootograms began to conquer Weibo and WeChat. The number of downloads and daily engagement level rose exponentially like rockets heading for the clouds at escape velocity. Don't ask me the impact of such growth on the long-term brand value. Don't ask me what this meant for the subsequent development and application of the digital watermark technology. Those are problems Mr. Wan had to solve. I was only a strategist for a third-rate marketing company who had some crazy ideas. I could only work on problems that I was capable of solving with my own methods. In the end, we underestimated the creativity of users. It turned out that Budogram pictures, due to the presence of the watermark, could be recovered from even low-resolution copies or cropped fragments. This meant they could be shared and forwarded without taking up much bandwidth or time. Trying to take advantage of the situation, we released a series of new ads touting this newly discovered advantage. Downloads spiked again, but no one anticipated what happened next. It started with a picture of an apple taken with Budogram. A week later, the poster shared a second picture of the same apple. It was apparently rotting at a much slower rate than other apples. Next came the various pictures of pets that miraculously recovered their health after having had their pictures taken with Buddha Then, an old lady claimed that after she had taken a Buddha selfie, she managed to survive a deadly car accident. Rumors multiplied. Taken individually, each seemed some preposterous April Fool's joke. But behind every story stood a witness who swore it was true, and the number of believers snowballed. The posts grew stranger. Patients with terminal cancer posted selfies showing their tumors diminishing daily. Couples who had trouble conceiving took nude selfies and became pregnant. Migrant laborers took group selfies and won the lottery. The kind of news that one would normally expect to find only on tabloids on the subway filled every social media platform. All the pictures had the Budogram watermark, and all of us... Thought they were from astroturfers hired by the company. We thought wrong. Supposedly, Mr. Wan's phone was ringing nonstop with calls from interested investors. Other than asking about a chance to invest, the next most popular question was Who is the master monk who brought light to the app? The logic was simple. If a consecrated mobile app could have such magical effects, Then asking the monk himself to perform some rite would surely result in earth-shaking miracles. The investors thought of this, and so did millions and millions of users. In this age, truth was as rare as virtue. Even more tragic, when faced with the truth, most people preferred to doubt its veracity because they would rather believe the truthy mirage created by their own minds. Soon, my contact details were leaked. Email, phone, text, everyone screamed the same question at me. Who is the Master Monk? I refused to answer. I knew they would figure it out sooner or later. Crowdsourcing the search, they finally managed to locate the Master Monk and the Disciples in the viral video. A bunch of actors my friend had found for me among the crowd of extras congregated at Hingdean World Studios, hoping to get a role. They were supposed to portray commoners during the Qing dynasty, which meant they were already shaved bald, just like Buddhist monks. This made negotiations rather easy. The extras who harbored dreams of making it big in the movies were especially diligent. And the lead even argued with the makeup artist over the correct placement of the burn marks over his head to indicate his ordained status. Watching the scene, I grew concerned. They were all good people. The fault was entirely mine. The poor actors who had been located by the human flesh search engine could no longer live in peace. The enraged netizens hounded them and their families using the vilest language, forcing them to acknowledge what was obviously true. They were mere extras hired by the company to portray the master monk and his disciples. Except that the crowd still wasn't quite on the same page as me. They continued to believe that my company, or more precisely I, was hiding the real Master Monk. Out of greed or selfishness, I was refusing to disclose his identity to the public so that everyone could benefit from the Master's powers. I really wasn't. Lao Zhu closed the company temporarily. Every day, groups of middle-aged women congregated at the foot of the building, holding up protest banners. Even if we could endure the pressure... The building's property manager couldn't. Lao Zhu put us all on paid leave, hoping that the storm would quickly blow over. Kindly, he told me that it was best for me to leave the city and return to my parents' home for a few days. It was just a matter of time before one of the netizens who was terminally ill might arrive at my door with his family, pleading with me to give up the Master Monk's WeChat ID. I realized that Lao Zhu was right. I couldn't put my family at risk. And so... After I settled my affairs, I came to this ancient temple to become a sweeper. The bell tolls nine times, indicating the end of morning lessons. The staff of the temple, including me, assume our positions. The temple is open to the public today, and the abbot, Master Data, will be greeting a group of VIP faithful from the internet industry and in conducting a salon to discuss the connections between Buddhist doctrine and the web. My assigned job is to hand out the visitors' badges. On the list of VIPs, I see more than a few familiar names, including Mr. Juan. Though it's 38 degrees Celsius, I put on my cotton medical face mask. Sweat pours off me, as though I'm drenched by rain. 100. The Faithful, now dressed in the yellow robes and yellow shoes normally reserved for monks, Stream in one after another, their colorful badges swaying on lanyards before their chests. For a moment, I suffered the illusion of having returned to my old life from a few months ago. The China National Convention Center, J.W. Marriott, Beijing, 798 D-Park. I was either at meetings or on my way to meetings, handing out my business card, adding people's WeChat IDs, puffing up our clients, sketching incredible visions peppering my speech with internet-thinking buzzwords. Like some updated version of a red guard clutching his little red book. The faces before me are still the same, but now their badges have been stripped of the eye-catching titles. CXO, co-founder, and VP of investment have been replaced by householder, believer, and benefactor. At least for the moment, they've retracted their typical arrogance and protruding bellies mumbling mantras, they take their seats and piously hand their phones, iPads, Google glasses, smart wristbands, and so on to the waiting novice monks in exchange for a numbered ticket. I see Mr. Wan. His face looks pallid and thin, but his gaze is steady and his steps airy. Placidly, he places the palms of his hands together and bows to the guests on either side of him, showing no trace of his former domineering air. As he passes me, I lower my head, and he lowers his in turn to acknowledge my greeting. Many things must have happened in the intervening months. Supposedly, Master Data had once been a promising student at the computer science department of Tsinghua University. However, as a result of his enlightenment, he gave up offers for graduate study at Stanford, Yale, UC Berkeley, and other ivy-clad campuses, took up vows and became ordained as a monk. With him as an example, a group of other graduates of elite colleges also joined our temple and began to spread the teachings of Buddhism online, bringing relief to all mortal beings with methods adapted to the Internet age. The master's lecture today roams over many subjects, so many that I barely remember any of them. I do see Mr. Wan holding a pious pose and nodding frequently. When the master discusses how big data techniques could be used to help locate the young reincarnations of Tolkas, his eyes even grow tearful. I'm trying to hide from him, but I also can't suppress the urge to go up to him and ask if the storm is finally blown over. I don't miss my old life, but I miss my family. Here, only monks who have achieved a certain status have the right to use the Internet. The layered green branches of the ancient cypress grove, like a firewall, separate us from the noise and dust of the secular world. My daily life, however, is not boring at all. Sweeping, working, chanting, debating, and copying. Uncluttered by material possessions, I've been sleeping without trouble for the first time in years and no longer live in constant dread of sudden vibrations from my phone. Though occasionally my right quadricep still suffers phantom pulses. But my teacher tells me that if I count my prayer beads all 1,800 of them, every day for 180 days, I shall be fully cured. I think it's because we want too much, more than what our bodies and minds are designed to withstand. My old job was all about creating need, encouraging people to pursue things that didn't matter for their lives, and then I used the money they gave in exchange to purchase illusions others had created for me. Round after round, we never seemed to tire of the game. I think about my wife's words. Her son is such a pushover, he might as well be a baby. Fuck, I'm even more useless than a baby. This is my sin. My bad karma. The blockage I need to clear for my progress. I'm starting to understand, Mr. Wan. After the lecture, Mr. Wan and a few others surround Master Data, apparently because they have many questions that need his insight. Master Data beckons to me. I gird myself and walk over. Would you bring these honored guests to Meditation Room 3? I'll be over in a moment. I nod and lead the group to the room in the back reserved for VIPs. I ask them to sit and I pour tea for everyone. They nod and smile at each other, but their conversation is restricted to small talk. I'm guessing that they are competitors outside the temple. Mr. Wan doesn't look at me directly, he sips his tea and closes his eyes, meditating. His lips move as he silently recites some mantra, and his hands are busy with a string of rosewood prayer beads. After the forty-ninth time through the beads, I can't hold myself back any longer. I walk up to him, bend down, and whisper next to his ear, ''Do you remember me?'' Mr. Wan opens his eyes and scrutinizes me for half a minute. ''You are Zhao... Zhao Chongbo! You have excellent memory, sir.'' Mr. Wan grimaces and lunges at me, wrapping the string of prayer beads around my neck and pushing me to the floor. You fucking idiot! He curses and strikes me. The two guests next to him stand up, startled, but they don't dare to intervene. Amitabha, Amitabha, they murmur. I protect my face with my hands, but I don't know what to say. Mercy! I cry. Mercy! Stop! Master Data's voice booms. This is a sanctified place. Such violence has no place here. Mr. Juan's fist, suspended in midair, stops. He stares at me, and tears suddenly spill from them and fall onto my face, as though he's the one wronged. All gone. I've lost everything, he murmurs. Then he falls back into his seat. I get up. I guess someone who's lost everything can't even strike very hard. My body isn't hurting at all. Amitabha. I put my palms together and bow to him. I know he's not feeling much better compared to me. Just as I'm about to leave the meditation room, the abbot stops me and strikes me with his ferule, twice on the left shoulder, once on the right. Don't discuss what happened today with others. You still have too much worldly arrogance about you and cannot handle important tasks. You must study harder and reflect on your actions. I'm about to argue the point, but then remember that I once tolerated much worse from Lao Zhu and Mr. Wan. Master Data is basically the temple's CEO. I have to swallow my pride. I bow to him and back out. I lean against the wall of the gallery and watch the woods in the setting sun. Smog glistens above the city like the piled layers of a sari. The bell tolls on the hour and startled birds take to the air. A thought flashes through my mind. I am reminded of how Master Subhuti once struck Monkey three times on the head with a ferule and then walked away with his hands held behind him, which was a message for Monkey to come to the back door of the Master's bedroom at the hour of the third watch for special lessons. But how am I supposed to interpret two strikes on the left shoulder and one on the right?